1: Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. Back in 2012, Wharton Management Professor Peter Capelli wrote a book that examined the question of why good people can't get jobs. Recently, we invited him back to the studio to see what has changed in the past seven years and what are some of the challenges that both job seekers and companies are facing with hiring practices. Peter, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. So one thing, when I when my one of my colleagues found out that I was going to be doing this interview, one thing he said was, oh, well, back then... The question was why good people can't get jobs. But I wonder if today, because the economy is better, is it why jobs can't get good people? But I think the interesting thing about your argument is that the economy actually doesn't have a lot to do with the hiring process these days or the luck that we might have.
0: Uh, well, I guess uh, in the usual academic uh, parlance, the caveat And on the one hand and on the other thing, uh, it certainly has something to do with it, but the, it's certainly easier to get jobs now, that's for sure, and uh, there's not nearly as much attention given to people who can't get jobs. It's still the case, though, that if you look at the proportion of people in the labor force, broadly defined or the equivalent, who don't have a job and want one, it's about 7.1%. Which is a pretty big number when you figure the unemployment rate is 3.7. So it's you know it's almost double that number. So there's still a lot of people who are unemployed and would like a job. Now, how many of those people are impossible to employ? Well, that's a pretty good question, right? So you know there still is some issue there. I think the issue on the job seeker's side, though, is to remember that most employers aren't interested in hiring people out of unemployment anyway. So in the U.S., we fill 66 million jobs every year. And if you look at the number of unemployed, it's a tiny fraction of that. It's a few million, right? So most all jobs are filled by people who already are working for somebody else. And that's what every employer wants, right? They want to hire somebody who is currently working for someplace else. And in fact, the preference has been for people who are not even actively looking, but let's go find somebody who seems to be happy someplace else because maybe they're a happy camper and we can hire them. So I think the hiring process is still remarkably frustrating for candidates because on the employer's side, uh, it's still not very sophisticated and it's not very careful either. So for the candidates, it's still pretty uh, opaque. I think on the employer side, you know, the, the question is always how much sympathy to have for them because they are in control of everything. You know, they could spend more on recruiting. They could raise their wages and get better candidates. There are all kinds of things they can do. And as far as we can tell, you know, the kinds of things they're doing are not particularly sensible and haven't been very effective for them.
1: And one of the things that you discuss both in your 2012 book and then also in a recent article you did for Harvard Business Review is that and I was shocked by this considering what an ROI centric world we live in these days is that there isn't a lot of studies into what the payoff is from hiring somebody that companies really don't know.
0: Well, and I think even more shocking than that is they don't ask. And most of them can't ask because they don't collect the data. So there've been a few surveys of this and Only about 30 percent of employers say that they are trying or that they care about, you know, in a way that they might do something about it, whether the process is giving them good candidates and good hires or not. So they're not looking. What they care about is time to fill a vacancy and how much it costs to fill a vacancy. So if you think about this uh, sort of cynically and you said, okay, let's see if we could judge restaurants this way, right? McDonald's would be the best restaurant in the country, right? They get it to you fast. It's pretty cheap, right? And so that's what most employers are doing. They're looking at cost per hire, time to fill, and they're not looking at whether our practices give us good candidates or not. And I think partly as a result of that, you can imagine with anything you're doing, imagine if you're trying to learn to play golf, let's say, right? And you go to a practice range, and you can never see where the ball goes. Let's say you're playing, you're practicing in the dark, and they don't turn the lights on for you you could imagine that you're doing all kinds of really cool things that are really producing great hits down the field but you actually got no idea and there's a pretty good chance that you're not doing very well at it and that's the predicament most employers are in right now they're doing all kinds of crazy things and in particular they're just not paying attention to even the things that we know would lead you to better hires
1: and what are some of those things
0: Well, I think the biggest thing that predicts whether somebody is going to be a good candidate or not is what have they done before, you know. So past experience, past behavior is still the best predictor of future behavior. And they're not spending an awful lot of time to try to figure out what did somebody actually do. So they ask them sometimes, but often they don't even ask them. You know, the craziest thing that we do is we spend all this time interviewing people. Mm and. It appears the amount of time it's taking to fill vacancies is going up. And some economists think that that's because it's harder to find candidates. But the evidence suggests that we have doubled the amount of time we spend interviewing, which is typically about the worst way to hire people. Because unless you're trained as to how to interview the questions you're asking probably aren't predicting anything. But what they probably are doing is leading to biases, demographic biases. Say it's
1: a highly subject- subjective process when you're sure. interviewing somebody. And
0: especially if you're picking the questions you want to ask and no one else is asking the same thing. So, you know, if you've got five people interviewing somebody and they're each asking different questions, they could come to wildly different conclusions about the same candidate. So... You know, we don't train people as to what to ask. The questions that matter are really all about past behavior. The problem with that is most candidates know what the typical questions are and they've got canned responses to them, so you're not learning anything from that. If you look at the people who do this well, like the executive search people who do it for a living, they spend a lot of time before they interview you figuring out what they're going to ask by Learning what you have done. So I talked to a lot of people about you, so they know the projects you've worked on. They know the ones that worked well and the ones that didn't. And they can zero in on detailed questions and go deeper to try to find out what really happened. You know, when you made that proposal to the boss, I understand it wasn't universally accepted, right? Uh, So what did you do after that? And then how did they respond when you said that, right? So they're more able to get at the truth about what actually happens because they already know a lot before they start to interview you. And I don't know anybody who does that, frankly, at least on a first-line supervisor, direct hiring manager process. And that's, I think, another problem is that we've given up on sophisticated recruiting, right? So the recruiters in companies have largely been dismissed, Um, A lot of it is outsourced to somebody else to do. And so we're allowing or requiring first-line managers or the hiring manager to do the hiring process. They don't do it very often. They don't have training to do it. This is the first person I've hired in three years. And uh, I'm supposed to do it. I don't know how to do it. And so guess what? I don't do it very well. It's not too surprising. And we don't know afterwards whether I've done a good job or not. So why – how could this possibly work? Well, it (laughs) seems
1: like they just assume that because this person is going to be managing that person that they know how to write an effective job description. They know how to sort of do an effective search. But that's really – a highly specialized skill of its own in its own right.
0: Right, and uh, as well, we never give many feedback. Uh, and so here's the the first problem in hiring is that typically, if I'm a hiring manager, I talk, I figure out what do I think this job is going, requires. And then I ask everybody else around me who might work with this person, what would you like to see in a candidate? But then we never whittle that down. We just add it all in, and then you end up with these job requirements which are impossible to fill. It's right? like a
1: Christmas tree with too many ornaments. A
0: Christmas tree, or they call it the purple squirrel or the unicorn candidate. Right? They just don't exist. Right? The the joke is we want you to have three years experience in a programming language that doesn't exist yet. Right? That's the, the standard joke on this so and it's true and then you end up not being able to find anybody who could fill it or if you really needed those things you don't have the money to pay to get somebody at that price point who has all those attributes because right?
1: anybody that has that is probably going to want a certain amount of money to take that job and
0: they're probably paid a lot already right
1: well, and one thing I found ironic is that the other thing that seems to be happening is companies are ignoring internal hires, that they're not looking at these people that they probably do already know a lot about and a lot about their skills and a lot about how they function in the company culture.
0: Right. I think that's exactly right. And I think it explains the complaint from employers that hiring is really, really difficult. One of the reasons it's really difficult is they're just doing so much of it. And the reason they do so much of it is because they're losing people out the back door all the time. So this is like, you know, bailing out a sinking boat and you're complaining about the size of the bucket you're using and you're not looking at the hole in the boat, right, which is really the problem. So if you're not promoting people from within, that means you've got to go outside to fill that vacancy, And you're doing it for all the jobs in the company now. So you've got to understand hiring in all these different labor markets, which is really difficult to do. And the other thing we know is that if you don't advance people from within, they leave. You know, the number one thing it appears right now that job seekers say they're doing when they look for a job, people are actively searching, is they're after career advancement. So if you're not giving it to them in your own company, they're going to leave. And you're going to have to fill their position again. Now you're not going to keep everybody, and there will be some people who are more valuable elsewhere than they are to you, but if you're not trying to fill any of your positions from within, you've got a big hole in the bottom of your boat, and you're never going to be able to bail yourself out.
1: Well, one thing we've heard a lot in recent years is that, you know, the whole the old model of where somebody started with a company when they were 22 out of college and then stay there till retirement, that that's gone away. But I have to wonder if we've almost created a chicken and egg problem for ourselves that we've decided that that's true. And so that means it's true of everybody, even though you might have some people out there that want to be able to stay with the company. You
0: know, that's a great point. And it explains something broader. And that is it's not that any organizations have thought this through, looked at the numbers and said this is what we're going to do. They're going with their gut and they're typically going with the gut of the people at the very top. And so, you know, you'll hear CEOs sometimes say this, you know, we can't afford to train people because they'll just leave, right? Well, everybody leaves at some point. Right? So, the simple idea that people might leave is probably not a sufficient reason to say that Uh, we shouldn't train. Everybody retires, you know, at some point, right? So I think that is the big problem, is that no one's actually thinking about this critically. No one's looking at evidence to see what works. They're just going with their gut on things. And that's proving, not surprisingly, to just not work.
1: Well, it also seems like do you feel like there's been almost like a rethinking about the value of human capital in recent years that, you know, you used to hire someone and really think about investing in them yes, right. and now maybe we don't think about that as much or companies don't feel like that's worth their their time or their money, probably more importantly, their money.
0: Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. And I think one of the reasons for that was probably a good one. I I suspect in a lot of companies, we were not holding people accountable, uh, particularly in large corporations. We were not thinking carefully about what they were contributing. We had developmental opportunities that were incredibly expensive. So you look at rotational assignments, for example. So they'll move you and your family to Europe for three years uh, so that you could learn some about Europe well you're never going to produce much in that because the first year or two you're just figuring out what's going on and then we move you back right so that that's incredibly expensive right so it is probably true that we were overspending on some of these things but I think uh, the idea that we shouldn't do any of it has become quite popular and I think that's partly to a human resource, problem in that human resources didn't even try really to defend against the onslaught of cuts. So the new approach, which began with the shareholder value movement, was to say, let's cut if we can't see that there's any value there, which is not a crazy way to go about things. Uh, The HR people were not able to show, hey, look, this really pays off. And if you're listening to this and you want to test this out, go into your own organization and just ask them the most basic question in this area, which is how much does it cost us if somebody quits, and see if you can get an answer. And if all you get is the hiring cost of replacing them, they're not paying attention, right? Because the cost is hardly that one. The big cost is leaving the position vacant, bringing in somebody new who doesn't know what they're doing, waiting for them to get up to speed. You know, those are the big costs. So if you're getting just a hiring cost answer, they're just not paying attention, and that is the simplest thing and the first thing to calculate,
1: and I feel like I think there's some research here at Wharton from Matthew Bidwell that says, I think, is it three years that it takes somebody to actually get up to speed if they're an external hire?
0: Yeah, very good. That's exactly right. It takes three years for new hires to produce as well as somebody who is promoted into the identical position. And it takes seven years for somebody who's promoted from within to make as much money as somebody hired from the outside, right? So the costs, the hiring costs per se are trivial compared to those costs.
1: Well, and the funny thing is with the seven-year number is that I've heard from friends who are looking for jobs is that people say, well, I have to go look for another job because that's the only way I'm ever going to get a significant bump in my pay. Right. And right. so I feel like that's another problem is that people, if people feel like they're not ever going to be appreciated the company they're at, they're going to leave and maybe that's not what the company wants.
0: Yes. Uh, I had a dean at another university, fortunately not this one, uh, who used to tell the faculty, look, you want a salary increase? Uh, go get another offer from somebody else, and then I can make it work for you, right? And the problem with that, you might say, oh, that's a good thing. You're market testing. But you're encouraging people to look someplace else, Right. And some of them are going to find something and they're going to leave. They start that process. They get persuaded. People are selling them and poof, off they go. I mean, this is like talking to your partner and saying, well, why don't you go date other people and then we'll (laughs) see who you like better, right? And come back with a better offer about vacations or a wedding or something like that. You know, I mean, it's just crazy. You're destroying the relationship you've got. So
1: since, I mean, since 2012, when you wrote the book or even looking farther back than that, have you, has, has what employees want out of a job changed significantly Like, what's most important to them?
0: You know, I think you probably all know this story about the hierarchy of needs. You know, first you got to eat. And in 2012, the unemployment rate was really high. Even more people had given up looking, right? We're sitting on the sidelines waiting for jobs to come back. If you could get any kind of job, you were probably delighted to have it. And as the labor market gets tighter and there are more jobs, people can be pickier, So I'm not sure that what they want is so different, but their ability to get things is going up. But it hasn't gone as much as people think. You know, for example, wages really have not gone up, right? and uh, work-life balance, which is the other thing you hear, is mainly still talk. You know, Companies talk about it, and maybe they're trying to do more on flexibility, but they're not doing anything to cut back the total demands, or even to help people work smarter yet. Right? So I don't think what people want has changed, but they can demand more. In some places, they're getting it, particularly there are some labor markets where wages are going up, and they're able to give people things or they're willing to give people things other than base salary, which seems to be the hardest thing to get.
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe giving them, like, the ability to work from home or something like that?
0: Right. So work from home has become more popular, and I think the reason for that has been, again, initially there was just kind of a bias against it. And the belief was if people were at home, they wouldn't be working, Right. And I think the response to that should be if you can't tell whether somebody's working, then, and you can't tell what they're doing. That's a problem. W- yeah, that's the biggest problem, right? So, uh, working from home, you know, seems to be the evidence we can see from careful studies, seems to work pretty well, right? So, giving people that seems to be a pretty easy thing uh, to do.
1: And are you seeing generational shifts? I mean, so in the seven years since you wrote the book, I would say that. Millennials are becoming a bigger part of the workforce, Gen Z is starting to enter the workforce. Do you think that them becoming the dominant people in the employee pool is gonna change things at all? Do they want different things?
0: Well, this is a conversation you might not want to have with me, because I don't believe any of those things are true. Okay. I don't see I don't see any evidence that there really are distinctive goals and values among whatever these different cohorts that have been labeled are. And as far as I can tell, no demographer has ever made those claims. I think what happens is that people confuse uh, jobs, uh, job seekers and employees of different ages with the notion that they are somehow different than people of the same age a generation before. And we don't see any evidence for that. As people get older, they want different things. That's for sure true, right? And so millennials or whatever we label want to attach to them and whatever age they're supposed to be since nobody seems to agree with that. But people who are in their 30s want different things and new kids coming in to the labor market now for the first time. That seems to be mainly because they're 10 years older and they're further on in their life. And many of them have homes and kids. And so they want different kinds of things. So I really don't see any differences in what people want. If you ask baby boomers, for example, did you want work-life balance when you were entering the labor market? They're going to say, yeah, of course we did. We just couldn't get it. You know, if you asked, you'd get shown the door. And now you can get it. So it's not that they're different. It's because the context is different.
1: Society has changed a little bit. Yeah. So
0: there's something in psychology that explains this. It's called the fundamental attribution error. And that means that when we look at people's behavior, we are inclined to assume it is because of who they are rather than what's going on around them. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what's going on here.
1: So technology, I guess, is a big piece of this hiring process and questions about why people are struggling to get jobs i mean i remember when i was in college it was encouraged to actually like call recruiters and try to get in for informational mm-hmm. interviews and do things like that and i feel like in not a very long period of time we've kind of gone for that being okay and accepted to you may never even talk to a human yeah like i mean it would be yeah. imp- it would be hard to find a human because yeah. there's all of these technological barriers in your way and what how has that changed the hiring process
0: uh, yeah, that's a big change. Although, interestingly, the advice you get from people is still the same. See if you can get around the technology and find some person. It's just harder to do now, right?
1: It seems like it might be almost impossible to do now. It
0: might be possible, and that's why so many people talk about networking to tr- see if you can get an introduction to somebody who's behind the curtain. What happened there was in the 1990s, uh, and employers were really desperate for hiring people, and wages were going up, and you know it was – by all accounts, I think, still tighter labor market than it is now, when that happened, companies tried to make it much easier for you to apply because they wanted as many applicants as they could get them i 'm not sure that was such a smart thing, and so everything could be submitted electronically that started too because then they started getting software that would scan it, and applicant tracking software is what this became known as, and so they made it really, really easy to apply and it's still there. So now it is so easy to apply. I mean, we, you might think that employers today just don't get many job seekers, but they get tons of applicants. And I think the evidence is that, you know, a typical employer, if you count people who go to their website to hunt for a job, about 2% of those will ever get an interview, right? So there's still a ton of people applying. And I think what has happened is simply that, that it is so easy to apply, that the companies have had to put up these screens, uh, technological screens, applicant tracking software mainly, as a way to weed them down. The problem is that's, I think most people still think, not a particularly great way to do it. There are ways you can game it, keywords and stuff like that that still seem to matter. So, you know, we got a problem, and it's another reason why you could be a particularly good candidate and never get through those screens unless you can somehow... Get to a real human,
1: I mean, I think a lot of companies would say if you ask them like they would say, Oh, we really want to try to get these non traditional candidates that people that may not have like a really obvious good fit for the job, but because of this of uh, these other interesting experiences they've had, they are a good fit, but I think it would be really hard to be that type of candidate and get through this hiring software or to get through a lot of the contractors that companies are now working with to do this.
0: I think that's right. Uh, And I think, you know, what you're hearing is aspirational. And, you know, it's also true that even at the vice presidential level, they're saying that stuff. But down at the recruiter level, they're still being assessed based on how well resumes match these job descriptions. And in order to assess whether somebody is really uh, a good fit, even though they 're different, it takes a lot of eyeball time you know and I think it 's a study that Corn Ferry did, and I think the Figure was they actually timed this that the recruiters spend on average about seven seconds uh, per resume, right? So, you know, and to figure out from a resume whether somebody has really done stuff that would fit is really pretty difficult. So, that's the problem, right? It's aspirational. We'd like to do this, but we can't figure out how to do it without spending money, and we don't want to spend the money.
1: I mean, are there ways that companies could be deploying a lot of this technology better?
0: Well, uh, 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 the one thing which is Already happening, uh, and the reality of it is not quite up to the promise. And this is the application of data science to the hiring process, and this is using machine learning. Machine learning is a technique for finding associations, patterns in data between the attributes that you're interested in and the outcome that you're hoping for. So, what attributes of job candidates relate to or seem associated with? Good performers versus bad performers, right? And there's pretty good evidence, I think, that on some dimensions, uh, software might be better at assessing certain aspects than a typical human might be because they don't have the biases. You know, if they're screening an applicant, for example, they're not going to be impressed by how they look because they don't see them, right? And, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can be sure the way you design it are not going to influence the algorithm, right? So there's some promise there. There's also some big risks. When algorithms make mistakes, they make mistakes at scale. You know, they make them for thousands of people, right? And there's also more litigation risk because uh, if you make mistakes at scale, somebody's going to find it. If you've got 100 recruiters and one of them is completely biased, it's going to be very difficult for plaintiff's attorneys or the EEOC, the government, to to find out what's going on with that one person. But if your algorithm is making a mistake and you're doing it to thousands of people, somebody's going to find that and you're on the hook.
1: Well, I think that's one of the interesting things you point out in the HPR article is that, you know, once somebody applies for a job, a candidate, that companies have like this sort of interesting like legal relationship with them that we might not even really think about in yeah. terms of like they, they can't be biased, there certain questions they can't ask. And I don't think a lot of us think about that when we, you know, press the button on LinkedIn to share our resume.
0: Right. The employers have legal obligations to applicants and it also costs them money to process all these things, even though they're trying to do it cheaper and cheaper, right? Which is why, you know, my advice was you don't want to just try to get as many applications as you can because we're not so good at screening out who's good from bad. And every one of those exposes you to liability and everyone costs you money. You'd really like to get a narrower funnel, you know, of people who apply who really fit. And that requires being more accurate about what you really want, right? And, and not promising people things which are, you know, not true, right? And telling them the truth about things that not everybody's going to like. Yes, you'll have to travel a lot for this job, you know? And what does a lot look like? Uh, well, uh, four days a week, <laughs> you know? If you don't tell them that you just say travel required, they might apply and say, oh, I can handle that. If they know it's four days a week, many of them won't apply, if they think that's impossible for them, a lot of people won't do that. And then you're not getting people in your applicant pool that you're going to have to somehow get rid of, right? Because if you hire one of those people, thing to remember is the worst thing you can do in hiring is not leave the job unfilled. It's hire somebody who's going to fail. They're going to mess up. You have to get rid of them. Then you have to replace them. It's like putting a bad part in a machine, right? It's a really costly thing to do. And we're not paying enough attention to that.
1: Well, and it's probably harder to get – I mean – once you've established that relationship and someone is working there, I mean, having that relationship end, even if they're not doing well, that's not as easy – that's not easy to do. It's
0: not easy to do, and it's costly not just in terms of you know the monetary costs of firing somebody and possible risks of litigation. It's actually in the U.S. not that hard to fire people, easier than almost any other country in the world. But uh, the real problem is they're doing a bad job for a long time before you get around to doing anything about it and you know companies haven't been that great about rectifying hiring mistakes that is, okay, is it a training problem? Is this a motivation problem? Is there anything we can do to try to improve the performance of this person? So they said, no, we're just going to fire them. But it's going to take a while to fire them, and so for six months they're here doing a bad job. You know, that's the real cost. And they irritate their colleagues and, you know, all those things.
1: So I think it's clear that technology, using technology for hiring people is probably not going away. But in your opinion, like what parts of the hiring process really, really need that, the human touch? Where is that most important?
0: Well, uh, let me answer a different question in the world of politics, and that is what we really need is to look and see what's actually working for you. Because particularly if you're worried about getting sued, the defense against getting sued for... Discrimination is that you can show that your practices actually work. If you can't show that, you've got a problem. If some vendor claims they work, that doesn't help you very much, right? So back to the where do we need a human touch on this, you know, I think the problem is human touch is pretty expensive. So the prior question is how much money do you want to spend on this? And I think the problem is we're trying to drive that number to zero, without considering that it's costing us an awful lot to drive that number to zero in terms of longer time to fill, but in particular, bad hires. So, you know, where could we use more human touch? Um, I think we could do less irrelevant interviews and fewer interviews that are really deep and sensible by somebody who knows what they're doing. So I think, I guess what I would recommend companies do is we're drowning our line managers in trying to hire as well. They're not good at it. They don't have the time. They don't know what they're doing. Can't we give that back to somebody who has some expertise in this? They can do it a ton faster and they can do it a lot better. So I'd say that's the human touch is to focus it right rather than spread it out as it is now on experts who really can get good at this.
1: Now, one thing I found interesting from the HBR article that you mentioned is there's like one factor that seems to have a lot of determination about how long someone's going to stay, and that is commuting time.
0: Yeah. So this was uh, uh, something that uh, didn't come up for me. This came from a company, Evolve, which was, and this work was all done by one of our former PhD students here. And this is the kind of information that came from this new wave of technology. And machine learning sort of stuff is agnostic as to what might predict. So if you think about it, commuting time, this was particularly true for jobs that didn't pay so well because people have transportation that is more troublesome for them. They rely on public transport often or they have cars that aren't as reliable. It's more expensive. Yeah, and it's more expensive, right. So uh, for those jobs, it turns out that if it's a long commute to get to work and particularly one that is less predictable, they're going to have trouble getting there on time. And if they're having trouble getting there on time in these jobs, they're not going to last long. So that's a good example of something that predicted fairly well and is something that you wouldn't have thought of unless you had started looking more carefully at this.
1: So I actually like to end with the same question that we ended with back in 2012, which is, what would your advice be to job seekers today in this environment?
0: Well, it's a whole lot easier. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good thing. Uh, and you have much better information now, you know, glass doors around. And most people, I think, believe that's much more reliable than what an in individual employer will tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, you can also negotiate more for things than you could have in 2012. And so that's probably all f- for the good. Uh, I think the advice of trying to get around the software is probably still true if you could do it that figuring out where jobs are is sometimes not easy through technology. A lot of jobs are still filled without posting the vacancies, particularly smaller organizations, and trying to figure out how to get to somebody who might give you a more careful read rather than simply going through the applicant tracking system still seems pretty good. But now the odds are much better that you're going to get a payoff. You probably don't have to apply to a 100 jobs to get one bite. Uh, Now it's you know, odds are much more in your favor.
1: Peter, thanks so much for being with us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's podcasts, articles, and more on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can find all of our podcasts on Apple's podcasting app, Stitcher, or your other favorite, Podcatcher. If you like what you hear, please leave us a like, comment, or review. It really does help like-minded folks to find the show. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.